welcome to the Forest Overstory. I'm your host, Sean Alexander. The Forest Overstory is a podcast that provides insight and education into the field of forest management, helping landowners to become better stewards of their forest. The Forest Overstory was brought to you by the Society of American Foresters in the Inland Empire chapter. Let's do this thing. <laughs> okay, perfect. All right. Well, thank you very much, Paul, for joining us this afternoon. Uh, we are going to be discussing today, I guess, a little bit about your work around fire and the landscape. So uh, before we really get into the interview, Paul, I just wanted to get to know you a little bit. So who do you work for? I work for the Pacific Northwest Research Station. It's one of many stations throughout the U.S. I'm part of the research and development uh, branch of the Forest Service. Very cool. Yeah, they, I, they've done a lot of really cool research. I know Dave Peterson has done some work out of there. And, and you guys are located in Wenatchee, correct? So you're right in the heartland of uh, the, the Cascades and the dry, dry pine systems. You betcha. We live in paradise. The uh, the Columbia River is uh, just a few blocks away, and uh, out my kitchen window are the foothills of the Cascades. Nice. Very cool. All right. Well, um, so for our listeners, where did you end up going to college, or how did you end up getting into this field? Well, I, uh, I started out as a forester at the University of Minnesota, studied uh, ecosystem analysis and silviculture, in a forest science program. And I had a couple of professors, uh, Dave French and Herb Coleman. One was a pathologist, another an entomologist. They really excited me about the, what was going on on the biology side with pathogens and insects. And I went on to get a PhD at Oregon State University in forest pathology. And then my work, uh, in I started out after my PhD and uh, began working in Western forests, looking at insect and disease problems, consulting with federal agencies and land managers. And I realized that uh, insect and pathogen disturbances were processes that essentially were reading the conditions on the landscape. And when the conditions changed, the processes changed. And that's sort of the way I marched from pathology and entomology into landscape ecology and wildfire ecology because uh, I was interested in studying how big patterns of forest conditions change the way processes work in the woods. Were you, when you were growing up, did, did you have parents that were pretty involved in natural resources or were you kind of an outdoors person? I was an outdoors person. Um, I go back pretty far and in the, in the 60s and the 70s, um, scouting was still an option for young guys. And uh, my Scoutmaster was a Green Beret survival instructor. He was interested (laughs) in teaching us how to survive in the woods. So in my troop, we had to camp every month of the year, uh, regardless of the Minnesota climate. And uh, that meant a lot of winter camping. And and then he took us through the Green Beret survival course. And the woods went from being a scary place to a place that I felt comfortable in. My folks wanted me to study medicine. And I began on that course. And uh, changed uh, horses in the middle of the stream, I guess, and uh, decided that I was more comfortable around trees and uh, forests were my happy place. And so I, I jumped off a chemistry program and uh, med school major and moved into forestry instead and started over. 
was uh, there a particular moment when you realized that uh, you just couldn't do medicine anymore and you had to get out into the woods? Well, my mom and dad, my dad was a chemical engineer and also a research chemical engineer, and he was a, a heady guy and a pretty <laughs> good judge of character. And um, he managed a large research program for a 3M company. And uh, I figured uh, he knew better than I did what I might be good at. And so for a long time, I, I followed what he said would probably be a good connection. And it was only when I got a little bit older that I realized I think I'm more interested in some other stuff and uh, stepped away from what I started and moved into forests and forestry. And I never looked back. I've had a love affair with forests and landscapes ever since. So it seems like uh, every, not every person, but a lot of the people that I met that are in this field, they always started out in something else. I know when I got to college, I was going the business route because, you know, it's a great way to get a job and great skills to learn and you'll be able to tie it into everything. Right. And I just remember sitting in my economics class and, oh, it was so boring and, and I just, I did not want to be there. And then um, I was down actually taking a, a class in Yosemite, a, a trip with Mark Swanson at WSU and same there. It just you kind of fall in love with the forest. There's something something beautiful about it. Yeah, there really is, and uh, it doesn't stop. This is uh, it's my 43rd year in research and development, and um, my connection to the landscape is only stronger. I, I'm having a hard time thinking about retiring, just to, yeah. to be plain, because I love what I do and I love the landscapes I study, and I've got the best. Uh, colleagues, students, postdocs that I've ever had. And so I feel like it's a privilege for me to be paid to do what I do right now. That's hard right. to step away from. Yeah. Every day is kind of a vacation in some sense. Well, my, <laughs> my, my vacations are a better um, But I still feel really blessed to, uh, to work in forests and forestry um, and get paid to do something I love. And uh, and make a contribution. So uh, all around, it seems like a pretty good deal. Very cool. So yeah, we're here today. I know the the kind of the theme that we're going to be discussing is is wildfires. It's been at 2021 has been a pretty bad year in terms of this drought, but overall, it's been pretty mild in terms of wildfires. There's there was a couple bad ones. But Paul, you're best known for, I guess, in the public for your work around this this term, the era of megafires. Can you expand on that? Yeah, we, uh, we tried something kind of experimental starting in 2015. Uh, the Wenatchee area got its butt kicked by wildfires again. And we had some close calls with uh, the city, uh, it, you know, getting burned. And so um, we did a museum exhibit. Uh, I did some fire ecology walks with citizens in the surrounding forest. And uh, people started saying, you know, this would be good TED Talk material. People should know about this stuff. We did a TED Talk in 2017. And uh, we think it went over pretty well. And we started filming Era of Megafires, and one of the reasons why is we realized that our lab and those of my colleagues have really cool stories to tell that people need to know about. Yeah. Uh, how wildfires can affect us, how we can get ready for them, uh, why the landscape's out of whack, all that kind of stuff uh, feels uh, fairly important. And so 
we decided we'd create a documentary on how wildfires got this way, why we're in kind of this era of megafires, and then some stuff that we can do about it from how homeowners and communities can get ready to um, how they can understand and support how we can change the resilience of the surrounding forests. What, what do you mean? I guess so. What 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 do you define as uh, the era of megafires? Can we break down what that era is and maybe what is a megafire? Absolutely. So a megafire we refer to is a really big fire, and to put a number on it, we usually say when it exceeds hundred thousand acres, it's a megafire. And one of the reasons why is we've studied the size distributions of historical wildfires, and what we found out is there were really big fires, but the most common fires were small to medium size. They were tens to hundreds, few thousand hectares at a time. And uh, while you'd have fires that would burn a million, two, three million acres, they were really rare events. And fires that are over 100,000 acres were actually much rarer uh, historically than they are today. And when you couple that with um, more patterns of severe fire inside of a you know, 100, 200,000 acre fire, that's really a different change. So what we're trying to do is call attention to the fact that this isn't normal, that yeah. uh, climate change is really speeding this thing up. Um, we're not having characteristic fire regimes. Size and severity aren't what we would expect. It's, it's atypical. What's up with that? And then have a conversation with people uh, about uh, what, what the science is telling us and uh, things that homeowners to – to mayors and politicians can do everybody can uh, affect the future going forward yeah i know you know just i just talk to different people everyone seems to be able to see that in the last 20 years every year it just seems to get a little bit worse and a little bit worse and you know we have thicker and longer prolonged periods of smoke more communities seem to be impacted by these wildfires i mean you've been in this field for 40 plus years now. Have you kind of seen this difference and this change? Sean, big change. We've seen, um, we're seeing uh, fires go until a season ending event puts them out. Uh, we're seeing fire suppression workforces overwrought, working just phenomenal hours under difficult, really dangerous circumstances. Um, I fought fires when I was young and my kids did going through college and what they have seen is much worse than anything I ever saw as a youngster. Uh, and I'm glad they're actually, they've aged out of firefighting and they're, they have careers of their own. Yeah. Um, because now I can breathe sort of yeah. a sigh of relief that my repeller son is going to be jumping into hell into a new fire. And, uh, so yeah, it's it's a different scenario, and uh, the climate change thing is a big deal. But the forests are different too, so there's a lot going on there. Yeah, it seems like you kind of got to unpack all these different variables that are influencing why these fires seem to have been getting worse over the last couple of years. Absolutely, and the stories vary from place to place, right? If you're in the American Southwest, or you're in California, or you're in the Boundary Waters, or you're in uh, Washington State, the storylines have similarities, but there's a lot of differences too. Yeah. You, you, were, you were mentioning earlier, you said that we, we used to have fire on the landscape and it was pretty frequent, and but they weren't very big. Uh, I guess, can you kind of dive into this history? What did fire look like and when did this start to change? The, uh, the, 
The 20th century, we see really pronounced changes in fire size distributions and in severity. Uh, we, uh, big fires burning across the landscape, they're not news. They occurred, and they occurred in almost every forest type that we know of within North America. What's really news is that their frequency is ratcheting up. And there are, there's sort of a constellation of factors that go into, you know, why bigger, why more? Big changes in the forest, a lot of fuel, a lot more forest, a lot denser forest. Uh, these conditions are contagious. They're next to each other and next to each other, that sort of thing. And, uh, and then the climate change signal is really, really powerful. And uh, it's going to continue on for quite some time. So hotter, warmer, drier, less snowpack, shorter winters, um, a lot more bark beetle outbreaks, added fuels. All of these things are working with each other to create these uh, covariates, if you will, or cofactors that start to explain why many regions have bigger, hotter fires. For our, our, our listeners, you know, how do we know what historical fire regimes looked like? What, what is that process of figuring out what you know, the frequency of fire was before we were really keeping those numbers? So there's a lot of different kinds of records that give us insights, Patrick. I have a, a number of colleagues who, who do paleoecology, and they'll look at um, pollen and charcoal patterns uh, in uh, lake sediments, in bog and fen sediments that, that are varved. their annual intervals of sediment deposition, and they can tell what year, based on these uh, annual sediment deposits, what year you're in, and they can go back into the climate record and then correlate more fires with hotter climate, fewer fires with the more benign climate. How did the fires change the vegetation in the surrounding landscape by the pollen signal? You know, when you had a lot of the junipers or when you had a lot of the sagebrush species or you switched into hardwoods, all these records give sort of a deep time understanding. And then we run fire histories uh, using recorder trees that essentially lay down a scar every time a, a fire occurs in the forest. And that the more of those studies that we can use and cross-reference, cross-validate, if you will, we then start to be able to put an emerging picture of, hey, the climate changes and the intervals look like this. And then the corresponding influences on fire, a process that's been there for very, very long period of time. Those interactions also change over time and space as a result of those influences. And so many things we can now look at and converge on a common understanding of how they create novel patterns and how those patterns influence processes going forward and uh, how long those kinds of conditions have occurred and when were periods that were really different than that. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting how, you know, we see, like you were saying, that frequency of fire it was so repetitive. You were saying earlier about, uh, what was it, 5 to 11 percent of the continuous United States was burned every single year? That's right. Um, a guy named Bill Leanhouse in 1998 published a really cool paper. He's a conservation biologist. And his question was, hmm, how much fire? was in the pre-industrial landscape. And so he essentially took the literature values 
of the range of, of fire conditions that occurred by every major forest type across the continental U.S., and he calculated the range of area that likely burned as a consequence of its published fire regime. And what he basically showed is that fire was such a frequent visitor to the North American landscape, regardless of the forest type. Different fire regimes, that sort of thing, but he estimated that between 5 and 11 percent, an area equivalent to that percentage of the continental U.S. burned every single year. Wow. That's tens of millions of acres. Yeah, yeah that's wild. I, I, you know, I grew up in Michigan, and uh, there's wildfires just really not part of the conversation there. I mean, they, they occur, but they're rare. And I think for that reason, they are kind of associated with being bad, just inherently. Wildfires are bad. You put them out when you get them. Here, moving out to Washington, there is a much more complex relationship. I think people understand that fire is uh, not inherently bad. It is a part of the ecosystem. Um, but there is a lot of maybe push and pull or um, there's a lot of conversation going on about how to use it right going forward. And I think, you know, we can look at the past and, and we know that um, Native American and indigenous peoples in this area use fire for, for millennia, um, centuries at least. Do you, can you kind of expound on that a little bit and how that was used um, before European settlement? You bet. I, but if I might, I just riff on the Michigan story you were telling. So I got my forestry <laughs> education in Minnesota and I used to backpack and hike in the Upper Peninsula, northern Michigan, and in northern Wisconsin, where, if you remember, jack pine and red pine right. uh, grow. And we've got aspen and birch forests, which are early cereal species that come in after fires, right? Well, we're now discovering that uh, there was an amazing fire ecology hmm. in the Lake Bates region that was put into suspended animation as well and hence that conversation about frequent fire keeping those uh, fire tolerant species and fire requiring species on the landscape that discussion is only happening among fire scientists and forest ecologists right. but there's a brilliant fire ecology known for the lake states region Indigenous burning went on everywhere, right? Yeah, and I'll, I'll continue that riff shortly. Uh, one of the facts I like to spit out is that one of the deadliest wildfires in history happened in Peshtigo, Wisconsin. Uh, yeah. In the, in the early 1900s. Not a lot of people know that. It was a huge fire. The Peshtigo fire, the Little Wolf fire, these were, these were fires that uh, generations before us their landmarks on their historical landscape, but most of us aren't alive that either were killed or had family members killed mm -hmm. during mm -hmm. those fires. So there was a, a three million acre fire in Maine. Nobody thinks about Maine as having a fire ecology, but they have an important fire ecology. So sort of in a way, it was almost kind of wherever Native Americans and humans existed, you kind of found this evidence of fire being used on the landscape. Absolutely. There's a, there's a really cool book called Forgotten Fires by Omer Stewart. If you haven't read it, I encourage you. It basically tells the story of indigenous burning throughout the United States. And the title is amazing, Forgotten Fires. Most people don't know. There isn't a sort of institutional memory that the landscape, regardless of where you were in the U.S., was a much burned place. I wonder why that connection was lost with 
European settlement? Because I know you see the same thing in Australia and many of the uh, their indigenous cultures. And then kind of when the colonization occurred, it was the same story of this, this change and loss of fire on the landscape. Do you have any theories why we, we really changed that? There are a lot of theories, and there's actually quite a bit published about it right now. The short version is that the U.S., continental U.S., North America was already settled by uh, First Nations folks in um, in the Canada provinces and uh, throughout the U.S., hundreds of tribes and tribal bands. And uh, they, the population at the time of first contact was probably somewhere between 15 and 25 million yeah. Native Americans on the landscape, right? Uh, so so much burning to cultivate the forest. If you think about it, dense forest is the enemy of food production. So fire is mm. going to be a fast friend, right? Also, there's safety concerns. So they're going to preemptively, proactively burn to make sure that the seasonal encampments and the places where they hunt ungulates and collect foods are safe. And then they use fire to tend. Uh, the forgotten fires narrative and the research that goes by is uh, is just super cool because it literally tells us that there's no part of the U.S. that wasn't regularly burned for safety, food production, war making, defense, all kinds of stuff. Fire and smoke were manipulated intentionally for millennia. Yeah, I always love the the history stories that you'll listen to of um, the the people that would come out west to kind of ex- the explorers, you know, Lewis and Clark and all these other Euro American explorers a lot of them actually had accounts of walking through these hazy valley bottoms or smoke would fill the sky for periods of the year. I mean, there's a lot of information, not just in the dendrochronology or the, you know, the fire ecology that we've, we've shown, but in even just in the written accounts that we saw and we described how fire was on the landscape. You bet that they're important data, right? Um, before we, we had established methods, all sorts of people uh, walking through, moving, settling in, colonizing a new area. The reports contribute beautifully to that longer narrative. So what did that do? What did this re- repetitive fire do to our uh, forest? You know, you've talked a little bit about patterns. What did that look like? So it depends on where you are. Geography matters. Yeah. And it depends on what the forest uh, types were in that geography. What are you most interested in talking about? Yeah, well, I, so we, this, we're covering Washington State. So maybe we'll break this into two parts. What did Eastern Washington versus Western Washington look like? I know Eastern Washington probably had a little bit more of a, a reoccurring fire regime. Yeah, so in the dry forest, you had really frequent fire. And uh, frequent fires were pretty low intensity, and they were skiffing off dead wood, thinning out the smaller trees, and that increased the likelihood that the next impressive fire was going to be a low severity fire. Some moderate severity in there as well, and when you had a severe meteorological event, sometimes you'd get patches of high severity fire too, but mostly low severity. And as you go up the hill where the productivity increases, more and more moisture, shorter growing season, you see different kinds of fire flavors coming on. You know, you get up into the the cold forest, you see more high severity fire, but also some moderate. Uh, In the mid elevations, you actually see an awful lot of low and moderate severity fire in the moist and dry mixed conifer both. A lot of neighborhood effects. If you've got a lot of moist mixed conifers surrounded around by dry forest, you'll tend to see the dominant effects of the dry fire regime in the moist. 
if the moist mix conifer forest dominates the neighborhood, you'll you'll tend to see more variable irregular fire. So uh, a lot of flavors. It varied where you were on the gradient, and it sort of varied where you were geographically in the Washington landscape. I'm curious. You you've said this word a lot, severity. I mean, it kind of makes sense. Severity. It's how severe was it, but how are you defining this word? What is it? What is the difference between low versus moderate versus high severity? So we talked about the flavors of fire, and that's really what we're talking about is the severity. Low severity means less than 20% of the dominant tree cover or basal area is killed by any single instance of fire. Moderate, actually, I'll go to high severity second because uh, it's more easy to define the high severity fire is where more than 70 or 75 percent of the trees are killed. And what's left is basically a remnant, if anything's left. And then what remains is the moderate severity fire, which has mixed surface and crown fire effects. And that's that's above low severity and um, below high severity. It's 20 to 70 percent of the trees are killed each instance of fire. And that it wasn't like a. I don't know how to say this. It wasn't, it was in the medium severity or the moderate severity. It wasn't a running ground fire. So was this kind of like a patchy distribution where you might see uh, areas where it it reached the crown and it killed off a large area? Or was it, you know, maybe just, I I guess I'm confused how that would have led to this different uh, die off in the overstory canopy. That's a great question. So I'll frame it using dry forests and the low severity regime. Okay. That's mostly where fires thin out the fuels. Trees are clumped and gapped in terms of their spacing. And so you have a lot of surface fire, some torching. You get into the moderate severity fire regime. These are more productive forests. Yeah. Typically more trees on them. and But you've got mixed surface fire and crown fire effects. Short runs of crown fire or active torching where clumps of trees are burning out. And then the fire goes back down to the forest floor, it's thinning out. So some low severity effects are kind of mixed in there, right? Surface plus ground fire effects in that mixed or moderate severity regime. And, uh, and so you can see it very much related to the environmental circumstances and what site climate is like during the fire season, right? Yeah. As you move up that gradient. And the gradient's important because the lapse rate, essentially relative humidity, relative humidity, vapor pressure, and fuel moisture, it varies as you go up in elevation, right? Fire season's shortest when you get up in the higher elevation. Those forests are available to burn for a short time. Down low, shoot, May or June, those forests are ready to go. Mm. Yeah, I, re- I remember when I was walking around for my master's down in southern Oregon, There, we would a lot of it was dry pine, but you would get up into this mixed conifer and you'd be walking and, and it was fairly dense. But then you'd find these open patches, maybe where the, the soil wasn't allowing the trees to grow or there was a rocky outcrop, a protrusion of, of some sort of geological feature. And, and it would create these kind of fire breaks, natural fire breaks in the forest. I mean, is that what's driving some of this variability? Yeah. So rock water ice, obviously, on the map is a is a a barrier to fire flow on the landscape, unless fires are really spotting long distances. Um, what uh, the uh, landscape ecology, the field that uh, that I marry with fire ecology, is a 
is a field that studies the patchiness of different conditions. And it's the, it's the patchwork of meadows and shrublands and shrub fields and sparse woodlands with forests of different sizes and ages that produces sort of the feedbacks to the flow of fire in the historical landscape. And what we know now is some of those feedbacks are no longer there because of uh, a long time frame without fire, right? So in the higher elevation forests, you know, what, what would be the frequency of a fire? How often would you see fire revisit an area normally? This is actually, uh, there's difference in the kind of observations that come out of the landscape ecology literature versus the sort of the plot-based fire ecology literature. The landscape ecology literature would tell you that sometime different places within the cold forest uh, the subalpine forest conditions were burning at a time that produced this patchwork. But if you zoom in on an individual patch or a handful of plots, what you see is that the fire frequency is every 75 to 150 mm. or 200 years. And the supposition that that's true of the entire cold forest environment is what is erroneous. You have to look at big space to see that some place is popping off with fire all the time. It's sort of this movable feast of where fire is burning at any particular time. <laughs> so as with anything, the answer is way more complex than we yeah. do. It yeah, it depends on the scale at which you observe the circumstances. Right. Yeah. So if we went to the other side of the hill and we're looking at western Washington, obviously moist, a lot more precipitation, um, sort of shorter dry seasons. What are we looking at in terms of fire? So uh, the west side in Washington is pretty unique, even in comparison to the west side of Oregon, for example. The further north you are in on the west side in Washington, what we really notice is an awful lot of fires in the Doug Fir Western Hemlock Zone, the Hemlock Red Cedar Zone, Silver Fir Zone, all those kinds of different forest types. As you ascend that gradient, they didn't get fire very often. So fire return intervals that are every 200 to 500 years. You get over the Olympic Peninsula, we see return intervals of 800 to 1,200, wow. 1,400 years between fire wow. events. Um, you still get the ignitions, but forests aren't available to burn so much of the time, at least in the historical record. You'd see really big, fast-moving, severe fires occurring when you have these east wind events, when winds out of the east are burning to the west, and you'd see spectacular fire growth that produced things like the Yakult burn, for example, that burned, uh, estimates are between a half a million and over a million acres uh, in the very early 1900s. So uh, you'd have these monster big uh, severe fire events, that's sort of like the most severe flavor. And then in non-east wind driven fire events, you'd have a very similar fire size distribution, small, medium, sort of medium, large fire events. And most of the fire events were actually small. Mm. They weren't large during these non-east wind events. You'd have fuels available to burn. Sometimes they'd skunk around for a few weeks. Sometimes they'd wake up and on a few days burn a bunch of acres and you'd see high and moderate severity fires. Uh, so you had a couple of flavors of fire, if you will. You have these moderate severity fires that are occurring in typically more moderate fire weather, but you got an ignition source and fuels are available to burn. And then these east wind events uh, are that worst flavor where you get just 
huge fire growth. And when we go back into the large fire record, what we see is east wind events occurred before, they're occurring again. And uh, as climate warms, we're going to see more days and weeks when fuels are available to burn. So it's quite concerning how these east wind events and fires will contrast with what we saw in the past. Right. I, I've heard the, those big east wind fire events in western Washington described not as fire events, but wind events with fire, because that really is what's necessary in order to have a large fire in, in western Washington. If you don't have that wind, um, it's typically not going to be a very large fire. But when it does, uh, look out. And my understanding, too, is it's, it's the three things you have to look for. Like you mentioned, ignition source, east wind event, and then an unusually hot, dry summer. And as you mentioned, we are having a more unusually hot, dry summers. There are lots of ignition sources. And yeah, again, that variable is the east wind event, which I haven't heard much about if, if climate change will affect that. Um, have you heard any? Uh, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I've not heard any models predicting whether or not there will be more or less of those east wind events. The collaborations between fire ecologists and climate uh, scientists have really quickened in recent years. And I'll bet you there's a lab or two <laughs> right now looking at uh, predicted frequency of east wind events. Right. Uh, but, but we know in the deep record that they occurred and uh, in Oregon and Washington on the west side, you know, we see in the last couple of years, another big east wind event occurred in Oregon, right? We burned a half a million acres in a few burn periods. So uh, we know they're ongoing. Um, one of the big concerns we have is that if fuels are available to burn more days, more often, how big does the east wind event have to be in order to be able to create conditions that can burn uh, over a long period of time? Some of them last for days. Some of them last for part of a day. Right. I'm curious. I, I might have missed this earlier if you said it, but how big were, uh, I guess, prior to the current climate conditions, how big were some of those Western Washington fires in these really uh, abundantly fuel rich areas? Uh, hundreds of thousands to over a million acres in size. So they were really, really, really big. Yeah, they're mega fires. So context is everything, right? When you're talking about a megafire. Yeah. I'm curious to like take this conversation now to management. And there's all these different areas that we're trying to manage, all these different forest types and, and people who have different goals. Um, you know, this, this podcast is a lot for uh, small forest landowners. Focusing on the eastern side of Washington state, are, is there a particular um, strategy that landowners should be implementing to create a fire resilient forest? That's a great question. I think there are several kinds of stra strategies, just like there are different flavors of fire and forest ownership. There's different ways of being able to attack the problem, right? If the goal is to be able to have forests around for the future, and it's a certainty that wildfires are coming to your acres, then the question is, are you willing to transition the current conditions to forest conditions for whatever reason that can withstand a fire? And I think those are the trump cards. Those are the top-down big ideas. Fires are coming to your acres. 
do you want them to be in some kind of forest condition that's adapted to fire in the climate? If that's the case, then there are a variety of tools, depending upon the land ownership, uh, that can transition the current conditions to those that are better adapted. Yeah, I always tend to think about forests and and fire resiliency as this kind of a risk tolerance scale. I know when you everyone fills out their 401 or not the 401k's. Yeah, that's what it is. My retirement account, they ask what's your risk tolerance when you're you're putting your money into these different stocks. To me it kind of seems like it's the same thing with fires. It's how how what's your risk tolerance to a fire coming through and you potentially losing yeah. your forest. Yeah, it's all about risk and reward if you're a private landowner, right? And uh, and what you're in it for. If it's a revenue stream, uh, you want to be able to protect the fact that there's growing stock to harvest in the future. If you're interested in, uh, in a lot of private landowners are growing habitat now, and uh, um, they yeah. want to be surrounded by a healthy functioning forest. Different set of goals, different set of tools. So I'm curious, how do you marry the two ideas of managing a forest for commercial, at least in the dry forest area? We'll, we'll keep our conversation there um, for a commercial value where your goals are, you know, you want to grow in a high enough density that you can you can harvest and have, have enough return. Um, you also have to maintain kind of a, a, the correct density of the trees so that you get the proper height growth and you, you know, you limit the lower branches. How do you balance that with also making sure that if a fire comes, it doesn't end up wiping out your forest? It's important to think about uh, AG and Skinner's fire safe principles. Uh, if you want to have uh, forests around, let's say a dry forest uh, to guarantee a revenue stream, then it's going to be important to be able to influence the conditions that can cause uh, long flames to crawl up into the crowns of trees and burn down your growing stock. So you mean, sorry, so you mean things like uh, kind of removing the understory fuels, uh, maybe creating fire breaks around your commercial stands, um, is, is that kind of what you mean? You bet. Uh, those things are, t- <clears throat> excuse me, tools that are adequate. Uh, being able to, so elevating the, the crown bases of trees in the dry forest is really important. Getting rid of the dead wood on the forest floor so there's not a significant amount of fuel for high energy release. That's going to be really important. Growing the fire tolerant trees, moving towards more clumped and gap distributions. If you think about the the coverage of tree canopies, they're like an umbrella that can trap heat, right? And so having clumped and gapped tree distributions allows you to be able to create areas where the canopy bulk density is broken up. So it's very difficult for a crown fire to run through that stand of trees. So you can apply these kinds of concepts, get really close to the growing stock conditions you want, but having a higher certainty that it will survive a coming fire. I know a lot of land these days, because of this lack of fire, the, the fuel bed has just been building up and building up and building up. We have a lot of duff. We've got a lot of litter on the ground. And then even above that, we've got a lot of grasses and shrubs that act as this fine fuel. What What do landowners do if they want to reduce this, but maybe they don't have the ability? I know prescribed fire is kind of one answer, but... Landowners can't really use that as a tool right now. What, what would you recommend? Landowners can use prescribed burning as a tool. They have to get smoke approval for the burning and they have to have the skills 
But right now there's all sorts of training available for people to become prescribed burners on their landscapes. So that would be what you would recommend is the number one way to do it? Prescribed burning is the best tool in the toolkit for dealing with getting rid of flashy fuels and the kindling that's essential to start the bigger wood on fire. We're not concerned about big down logs as much as we are about stuff that's a quarter inch to an inch to two, three, four inches in diameter. That's the kindling that gets everything else going. Prescribed burning is a, is a way on the cheap to get that fine kindling material consumed. What would you say to a landowner who's um, just a little uneasy by the idea of introducing yeah. fire to their property? I mean, it, it, it seems like, a, you know, if they don't know a lot about uh, prescribed fire and how it works, it could be a potentially disastrous move, a little bit of a coin toss. If they're, if they're, uh, risk tolerance is really, really narrow. There are other things that they can do. They can stack sticks and make uh, piles in the woods that they can burn in the off season, for example, pile burning in these smallish piles, which you've seen all over the place uh, in the dry forest where people are trying to transition conditions to those that are more resilient. So they can burn piles and they can light them in November and December and January, right? Uh, that's happening a lot. I, you know, I really, I agree with you. I like the idea of trying to promote prescribed fire on the landscape, but we have a, a pretty tough challenge when it comes to the liability and some of the legislation. Because I know, you know, if you look at some of the southwestern or southeastern states uh, in the U.S., they have right to burn laws there that allow people to burn on their property. And we just don't have that here. So to me, it seems like we can't even start to have this conversation until we really look at some of the laws that we have in place that that protect people. That's absolutely right. The right to burn is long established. But if you look at where uh, states have developed right to burn laws and prescribed large prescribed burning targets, they've over nearly 50 years now developed a conversation with the people about uh, creating safe burn conditions and that sort of thing. And then they demonstrated year over year that they could get this work done, and they did so successfully. From the, the Carolinas and Georgia down to the South Coastal Plain, prescribed burning is a huge deal, and the prescribed fire councils made that inroad by gradually growing that prescribed burning footprint, and now there are master burners all over the place. Rebuilding that relationship with fire is key in the West. Yeah, that's one of the programs I hope WSU Extension is able to bring in the future to start looking at actually training landowners how to burn through some of these TREX programs that we've got going on in Washington State. I understand your own Mark Swanson is actually making inroads in that area. Yeah, he's going to do some really cool stuff. Yeah. I know he's, he just started a class at WSU to start teaching students that, and they've partnered with some of the local fire districts. So that'll be really cool to actually see how those projects come out and how successful they are. University of Idaho has a, an incredible program that uh, Penny Morgan, before she retired, put decades of work into. It's, it's now a great example westwide to look at. Um, I would guess partnering with Idaho uh, would be a really fast setup as well as you establish your own program. That's the, the SAFE club, right? The Student Association of Fire Ecology? Well, they actually they teach people how to do prescribed burning in the Idaho program. Oh, wow. Um, so, uh, and the certification of, of burners uh, is, occurs 
in the Association of Fire Ecology and also through various coursework development that they host. So some of their classroom instruction leading to the experiential requirement they're actually getting in school. So it accelerates their timeline to become uh, burn bosses and lighting and holding bosses. Does Idaho have right to burn laws? Not that I understand. Oh, so it's just, it's totally a, a cultural and community driven educational need. An awful lot of it right now requires that you've got to have the right certification to be able to do it and uh, approval, smoke approval, and clear estimates of the tonnage of fuels that you are anticipating burning. Yeah, and uh, to add to that, I, I've been fortunate to participate in a few prescribed burns in Michigan, and um, man, it is just a finely tuned operation. I, I can't speak for all of them, I suppose, but uh, the ones that I've been involved with, you know, you talk about the the planning and preparation uh, and cautions that go into that with fuel breaks, emergency water, eyeing the weather, weather's got to be perfect. Um, you know, when done right, this is an incredibly effective and rewarding tool because as many people have known and seen pictures, you burn it. And even the following year it's, or later in the season, it's lush. With Absolutely. Growth, so. they, you know, you said something earlier, Sean, that really has iron in it. We're a culture right now that's afraid of burning, but when you get fire back into the picture, you can actually start to understand how you can not only live with wildfire and prescribe burning, but you can create as a new cultural paradigm that living safely requires uh, being master burners again. And that's the, that's the learning from the indigenous tribes. And I think that's what the science teaches us. We have to invite fire back into our culture and become master burners again. So you've talked a lot about the why we should burn. And I, I guess I think for a lot of landowners, there is this, like you said, there's this innate fear. Uh, and we kind of have heard some horror stories of prescribed fires getting out of hand. Now, I think that is the minority. We should definitely say that there are only a few instances where this has actually happened. But what have we learned from those fires? Like, why did they get out of hand in the first place? And what are we doing in the future to change that? My understanding of the broad statistics across the U.S. is that somewhere between eight and nine out of 10 prescribed burns, they stick the landing on. And uh, the things that cause a slopover, for example, on a fire or a fire to consume a house, they're related to unforeseen, unforeseeable changes in the weather that happen. Uh, when all of a sudden you get winds out of the high country into the low country and they weren't in the forecast. And so, like Patrick was saying, the due diligence that goes on for the setup to do good work with fire uh, requires really a, a weather, a watchful weather eye on what's coming in in terms of weather and then being able to get it to happen during those hours when you have of a day of a burn period, when you have the most control over the fire event, really breaking up the work to low risk periods. I'm curious then, so we've talked a lot about fire. Why is it a better tool? Maybe better is not the right word, but why is it a tool in comparison to mechanical thinning? Because instead, I mean, I could give the argument, well, instead of taking that risk where I might, you know, even one in 10 times potentially burn a house down, I might go out and do a mechanical thinning and maybe that's going to have the same result. Why would that not have the same result? Why should we be using the fire there? So mechanical thinning is a really useful tool, especially during, as a result of the period of fire exclusion. 
But perhaps the best way I can illustrate is to go back to your Michigan country and to have a conversation about, you know, go back in the Wayback Machine and say, what did that place look like? Well, there were a lot of fire adapted pines on that landscape. And after severe, you know, sort of hot licks of fire, you'd see Aspen, the northern hardwoods and the transitional hardwoods would pop into play. Right. And you wouldn't have vast area of maple and basswood across the landscape. You'd have areas where you had a lot of aspen and birch broken up by eastern white pine, red pine, jack pine across that landscape, species that are highly adapted to fire. When you keep fire out of the woods, you transition to a hardwood-dominated sort of mesified forest condition, right? So that entire landscape in 150 years doesn't look anything like it did when the early trappers and traders were working that country. And so, right. so stuff happens fast on that landscape if you're not running fire through that and managing it. And sort of the take home message there is if you want fire to be a regular player, then the fire adapted species in Michigan and Northern Wisconsin and in uh, you know the Arrowhead country of Minnesota, those species are the ones you want on the landscape that have apps for fire. Those aren't the hardwoods. Hmm. You know, there's uh, I, I've always thought the fact there's it, how each species has kind of evolved to live with fire is always really cool. You look at um, lodgepole pine and it's got its serotonous cones. And I mean, I, I've even heard once that they had it timed down to when lodgepole would release its cones onto that, that fresh soil bed or things like the ceanothus plant shrubs, they have these seeds that get stored in the seed bed for hundreds of years, maybe not hundreds of years, but you know, a very, very long time. And then they'll remain there until it has that heat from the fire to come and cause that seed to germinate and begin to, to, to grow up. Yeah. The, uh, the entire plant community and the animals, they're adapted to the vagaries of fire in its patchiness across the landscape. Plants and critters aren't doing in the same thing in the same place over time. The variability of the fire regime is moving stuff around. But what's really cool about the fire regime is you see repeated sequences in different places of the same kinds of things. So at a landscape scale, the interaction between the environment and the species is creating patterns that reinforce the processes of interest different places different age classes different meadow locations that sort of thing but you see these repeated themes emerging that's the big landscape pattern process interaction mm -hmm. that we research is this is this how we kind of attack the the outbreaks that we've been seeing of some of the pine beetles in, in our landscape it's exactly right. So pine beetle outbreaks are really kind of a cool case. Let's uh, drill in on that a bit. Um, uh, Scolitis and dendroctinus beetles uh, have a maturation requirement. They have to go through a flight period. to They emerge as young adults, and they have to mature by going through a flight period before they land on a low vigor tree that where the female can pioneer, layer eggs, blah, blah, blah. Well, that flight, they run out of gas in about a kilometer. Uh, a flight. They're they're fairly terrible flyers. It's like a tank trying to fly. And uh, so they're flying around the woods and they're looking at the same time for a tree to inhabit. And when you imagine that you've got this patchwork of hardwood conditions and uh, meadow conditions, well, they get lost very often in the historical scenario, trying to find 
uh, uh, low vigor host to be able to mate and lay eggs on. And so dispersal losses are a huge part of the ecology of bark beetles historically in the patchwork landscape. Roll the film, exclude fire for 150 years, continuous forest, wall-to-wall -wall lodgepole. Well, they don't have trouble finding a, a, a patch of host material to be able to, to lay eggs on. A lot of low vigor trees, forests are too dense, blah, blah, blah. So you can see the patchwork is highly influential to how beetles get to make yeah, a living. Yeah, and then you kind of stack on climate change into that, and these trees are already fighting for resources. So the stage is really set for these outbreaks and, and vast spreads of fire. It's absolutely true. You've got uh, dense forest, back-to-back uh, uh, -back drought years, low-vigor trees, endemic populations of beetles are high, so they can take, take advantage of those conditions. And so you see big chronic... Uh, beetle outbreaks until the forest is so thinned by beetles and there's a lack of host material that the outbreak will collapse in that local area. <laughs> so um, I kind of putting the landowner hat back on and, and just thinking of someone that owns, you know, 50, 100 acres or something in eastern Washington, they know that they should be doing something probably, right? They, they need to look at their risk uh, management and, and figure out where they fall on that spectrum. One of the questions I imagine them asking is, okay, well, if I do this and I go through all the work to, to reduce fuel loads or maybe burn piles or, you know, introduce fire to the landscape, but none of my neighbors do, is this going to be effective? What's the point if, uh, you know, I'm surrounded by other people that aren't doing anything, whether that's private or, or non-private land? An individual forest owner can take responsibility to reduce their personal risk of their plot of land. If you have 50 acres and you thin it, and you favor the fire-tolerant tree species, and you break up the canopy, and you get rid of the dead wood on the forest floor, you've really changed your odds for that 50 acres that when a fire comes in, it will be able to withstand that fire. The neighbors may not, based on mm -hmm. what they've done or not done, but that you've changed the risk portfolio for your 50 acres. Yeah. And I know I was talking to some firefighters as well, and they said that those areas that end up getting thinned become really good stations for them to get in and dig fuel lines and actually be able to fight that fire there. So you all, you also have this uh, human element of being able to stop the fire at that area. It's a, it's a it, the, if you were to cartoon what uh, wildfire suppression is like the, the overhead team wants to have lots of areas where flame length is less than two meters so that direct attack is possible. So the pattern of expected flame length is the management concern. Flame length comes out of fuels, fuel ladders and dead wood on the ground. If you manage those things, you've managed flame length. So for all our listeners, right? I'll just say two meters, that's about six feet too. So you don't have to do the conversion at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you bet. Thanks for that. Oh. So, <laughs> I always forget sometimes we're not in, uh, in the metric units anymore. <laughs> yeah. So the, the problem attack in fire suppression is managing flame length. The problem of creating resilience is making it really likely that the flame lengths are short and they don't get into the crowns of trees. 
Yeah. And, and I've seen some really cool pictures of, you know, this forest was thin to this forest wasn't before and after a fire sweeping in. And, and the difference is remarkable. And, you know, that's that's true even um, not just in, in the dry forest. It's also true even in Western Washington as a concept of, you know, you can make a huge difference in trying to protect your home just by managing that, you know, 100 feet within within that structure. Um, and, and I think some people maybe just kind of take it as a goner sometimes, but no, you can influence it. In Western Washington, you can use all the fire wise principles and have your home and your property ready to go for the coming wildfires. The thing about it is people in Issaquah and Skykomish aren't thinking about the fact that a wildfire can nail their, their landscape and their home, but, but they're vulnerable. Yeah. I got to start thinking about that. And those firewise principles are really applicable there. Yeah. The last time I drove up uh, 90, getting over into Eastern Washington, driving through Issaquah, that's all I could think about. <laughs> so how do you, how do you do that on the West side? I mean, cause we've talked about how fire was frequent and kept a low density of vegetation on the East side, but on the West side where you have uh, the strong influence of the ocean, which just leads to this, you know, a lot of ladder fuels, a lot of shrubs. And these are really important functions on the landscape. They offer security and cover for the deer. Uh, I mean, a lot of the bird species have adapted to these closed canopy forests. Uh, those ecosystem services, a lot of the waters are used to having uh, a, lo- a highly shaded stream bed, which cools that water down. I mean, how, can we just go out and thin our forests in the same way we would on in eastern Washington? So if you're a homeowner, you can prepare your landscape in all of the same ways. The firewise principles hold, the community-wide preparedness plans, they're smart to apply on the west side. When you get out into the forest, it really depends on the forest type and the value of the forest. If you're the Cedar Creek watershed and you provide X percentage of water supply to King County, do you want to take a severe wildfire on the nose? You probably don't. So creating conditions that are more like that which would foster moderate severity fire is probably a clever move. So watershed protection might consider using some of those thinning and fuel burning kinds of things to break up canopy bulk density, right? Uh, If you're in the business of growing habitats, the east side methods do not apply to the west side. There's some flavors of wildfire that derive from these east wind events that uh, that you cannot stop. And so so keeping people safe uh, is really important. The firewise stuff, the community-wide preparation, and then disaster preparedness planning is really, yeah. really critical. Those flavors of fires you will not make go away. And uh, so on the east side, we have more tools in a way. We don't have to take it on the nose. We have an awful lot more tools in that frequent fire environment. On the west side, productivities are so amazing that you can treat areas, and in five years, they're vulnerable mm-hmm. again. So um, so it's a different mindset, if you will, right? Uh, and it depends on the value of the forest that you're thinking about. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think you hit it on the nose. There's, there's some areas, you know, if you're in parts of, 
Mason County or uh, in the Puget Trough, like uh, I'm thinking down Rochester to Nino area, some really kind of drier forests, even Oaklands that you see down there, down in the gorge, you'd see some similar stuff where you can apply some of those um, dry forest fuel management concepts and it makes sense there, but they're kind of the exception to the rule. And I agree with you, if you go out and you brush hog your your nice hemlock cedar forest uh, and you're just going to have to do it again later that year. So, <laughs> well, not only that, you relocated a lot of um, fuels, live fuels from the lower crown classes to the forest floor. So you have hyper-concentrated surface wow. fuels. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So the, yeah, the preparedness is really, I mean, I, I think one of the first things anyone should do that lives in a home in the woods is have an evacuation plan. I mean, that's that's probably first and foremost. And if you can work with your community to do that, that's great. And then start working on those firewise principles, all that stuff within 100 feet or so of your house. All that stuff, like you said, is extremely valuable still. It's extremely valuable. The uh, And the other thing is an awful lot of the the western slope of the Cascades. And now we're uh, going in and looking at the Osborne photos from the Olympic Peninsula, you have no idea how much fire there was on the Olympic Peninsula. It would, it would blow your guard. Um, yeah. And uh, especially in the high subalpine country, just a tremendous amount of fire. We think that that mountain goat habitat has been adversely affected by a loss of fire, really patchy landscapes in those environments. Were these Native um, American driven so or were they lightning driven? Well, it, what we're thinking right now from the areas that we're looking at uh, is that an awful lot of these areas, uh, so there were great tribal migrations seasonally from the west side to the east side, okay? And a lot of times they'd go through these passes where you would see uh, fantastic availability of cedar bark strip, stripping as you would go up and down those gradients, east side and west side, and then phenomenal berry fields. And our thought is high in those huckleberry regions that there is extensive mm. burning going on to make sure that those bushes were ever bearing and stayed in a thrifty condition. And also uh, when you're going through those dense forests, uh, people are vulnerable, and so uh, a good way to use fire would be to walk fire away from their travel ways so their sighting distances, uh, in a defensive sense, were much longer so that they, someone couldn't sneak up to them. Um, imagine that you're carrying cedar bark and baskets full of berries and things like that. You've already collected the food. Uh, so I would say that uh, for safety in travel ways, there was likely burning going on as well. So you could see for a long distance and yeah, be prepared. I, I know that's actually been on the east side has been a really big concern for first foods is this loss of fire on the landscape. As you were just saying, you know, these really abundant berry fields. I over here we've seen a rapid decline in a lot of the huckleberry and the camas and many of these species that relied on these kind of open woodland meadow type systems. That's exactly right. One of my favorite places to, to skink around in is the San Juan Islands. It's talk about master burning and cultivating the forest. Did you know that the tribes that inhabited the San Juan Islands carried Oregon white oak acorns and planted them and expanded the range of Oregon white oak and then used fire to huh. tend and create oak woodlands? And they used fires to be able to 
uh, reduce the pests before harvest time of the uh, seed uh, insects that during the milk stage, the acorns that would like to, to get in them. When the larvae, was, before they would emerge, they would burn that ground to kill those pests so that the number of pests to affect the oaks the next season was much reduced. Just brilliant use of fire and cultivation yeah. of the landscape so they can live there. They were salmon and yeah. acorn people. So they yeah. brought the acorns. Vancouver Island, uh, uh, up the, the BC coast, they cultivated Oregon grape. Well, I mean, Oregon white oak, well beyond its it, range. It's so cool that the generational knowledge that these these tribes and not just the tribes, what they would share between each other. It was so deep, and how much they they the, how much learning they had and the skills they had that really kept a lot of these ecosystems going long, long into the future. It's exactly right. They were master burners and they had knowledge keepers who were the hereditary knowledge to transfer uh, between young people who were interested in knowing that stuff and they'd teach them before they would pass. So from generation to generation, that knowledge would not only be held, but would be augmented. Here's how you do it in this drainage. Here's how you do it on this side of this mountain. Uh, deep knowledge, deep sense of yeah. place about how to apply the knowledge. It's spectacular. So we're getting pretty close to the end of the episode here. uh, And we could probably talk about Native American burning for another four more episodes. Uh, But I wanted to ask you one last question. I want to get your opinion on something. And it's a policy question. So feel free to give me the, the vague answer if you need to. But there is a lot of debate around how Eastern Washington riparian management rules have influenced fire regimes in these areas. And so I'm curious your take on what the history of fire in riparian areas look like and does our do our current policies do they replicate that are they inhibiting that or you know if you would like to see a change there what would you like to see? Yeah, uh, part of that I'm not going to touch with a ten foot pole, and part of it, (laughs) part of it I will answer. Um, So, you know, valley bottoms are incredibly productive; they're moist, and so we grow really big trees fairly fast, even on the east side in these areas. And if you think about an awful lot of our riparian policies, like the Northwest Forest Plan. Uh, aquatic and riparian strategies and buffers were set in motion to stop a speeding train, right? Uh, what we know from the science side about riparian areas, if you're, if you're a riparian setting that's along a stream gradient that's 1% to 5%, most of the disturbance ecology came from uh, ice flows at breakup and Uh, flood events, big sediment events uh, associated with sort of replenishing what would be the hardwood tree and shrub population, recycling those clones, that sort of thing. So it's not so much a fire regime in those areas that actually have a floodplain and and saw a full wetted width, right, in the historical ecology. They don't get downcut because sediment's always being redeposited and the channel is recutting and new braids are forming, that sort of thing. So that's a very water-driven disturbance ecology. But when you get above about that 5% grade level, what you see is floodplains get really, really narrow and riparian conditions are really proximate to the stream, right? They're quite close. 
And in, under those conditions, we more often see that the fire ecology of the adjacent upslope is the fire ecology that associates with that riparian area. So you can imagine the lower gradient areas, very much a water-based, ice-based disturbance ecology. You get up into the steeper hill slopes, you see that the fire ecology of the adjacent side hill more governs what's going on. In so if field. I were to kind of take something out of then, it seems like you're saying we should really focus in the adjacent areas to the riparian and implement a lot of these uh patterns that you've discussed that, you know, the individuals, clumps, fire resistant trees, spacing, blah, 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 but then in the riparian areas really allow the water to drive that disturbance. Where the riparian is narrow and it's next, next to steep sloped country, the fire regime of the upslope is likely the fire regime historically that occurred in that area. Where the riparian areas are broad and associated with floodplains and shallow gradient streams, the fire regime isn't the big story. It's the flooding story, the, the spring floods, the, the, the ice at breakup that's killing the cottonwood, mm. that kind of thing. Uh, that becomes the key story. Uh, and so if, you, if your goal is to make more properly functioning riparian areas, then managing the upslope and its fire regime in the steeper country is a clever move. And, uh, and you'll get uh, better benefits uh, and more sunlight uh, in those riparian areas and more likely more hardwood shrubs and trees. Perfect. Thank you for that answer. It was uh, obviously there's kind of a, a really complex discussion there. We could probably open up a whole nother can of worms. I think with that, though, we, we're reaching about an hour. So I will go ahead and uh, say thank you, Paul, for joining us. Thank you for uh, discussing this this really um, sensitive topic, but a really, really important topic that we need to start having, uh, especially in Washington state, as it seems like our state kind of is behind the curve compared to others. Thanks for uh, having me on your podcast. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. Let's do it again. 